Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast, the number one nature podcast in Chile. <laughs> I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. Yes, uh, we, we have actually reached number two when I last checked in the UK, behind Melissa Harrison's podcast, which is basically number one these days, because she's always number one. Yes, yeah, so I hope you're all well. Welcome to 2021 and all the fun that's entailing <laughs> at the moment, but we'll skip past that, I think. Yeah, d- dare, we, dare we say Happy New Year to everyone? Yeah, well, you know, I hope it was happy for the... Well, I was in tier four when it started, so... <laughs> yes, well, Happy New Year, everyone. Well, we've got lots of good plans for this year, so lots to look forward to. Live podcast we'll talk about a bit later as well. And we're going to look back a little bit and talk about our wildlife highlights. Uh, so what was your wildlife highlight of the year, Vic, would you say? Um, I bet you can't guess, Neil. Mm. Were they orchidy and slightly hymenopteran in theme certainly was it can be only one thing for me and that has to be the bee orchid that i had growing in my front garden i mean that is my wildlife highlight of 2020 honestly there cannot be anything else how about you neil (laughs) yeah it's a tough call i think the hornet robber flies are pretty cool and getting erica her first one was a pretty good highlight but i think just for a moment just sitting there in a moment and enjoying it it was sitting and I was sort of half floating in my waders in the River Stour with banded demoiselles flittering around me. And I think they're a little bit gaudy. Everyone goes for the banded demoiselles as their favourite dragonfly. But that was really quite cool. There was fish swimming around my feet as well. And yeah, I just uh, no one else for probably a mile in every direction, I reckon, at that point. So it was really quite nice. You know, after we've been stuck inside all that time. And I think that must have been June or July that happened. So yeah, I'm going to go with that. But if you ask me in a week's time, I'll probably think of something else. But <laughs> that was pretty cool. But we also asked you guys on social media what your 2020 nature or wildlife highlight was. And we're going to read out a couple of them. Well, more than a couple of them now. So big thank you to everyone that kind of got involved with that. And first up is Michael Amos. It says, for him, seeing a minky whale and a humpback whale off Cornwall on the same day. That's, that's pretty cool. I think that'd be a wildlife highlight for anyone. Richard Greenwood, that's Leeds Diver on Twitter, put, when travel was allowed, he got to snorkel with the seals off the Fine Island. Now that's a good one. That is good. Alan James, which is Alan N. Jet, getting a couple of shots of a black red star on my garden fence from a couple of weeks ago. Paul Fraser Fish, put, getting involved with macro photography and allowing people to see some of the inverts I work with. Absolutely love being able to work with these little critters bigger. Um, and he put a photo of a clinging mayfly nymph. So go check that out. Uh, we did. I think I retweeted all these on our Twitter as well, so you can go back on our feed and find these. We had Hazel at Zoanthia. At least 21 dragonflies hatched from our garden pond. A real joy to watch. I reckon she said that just to make me jealous. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Mild peril. But literally every single time I saw a cormorant on the Brent or Grand Union Canal, even though sometimes it was four in a week. I used to get really thrilled by Actually, I still do get a bit thrilled by seeing a cormorant. They're so prehistoric looking. They are, aren't they? We had just Sophie at a place of mine. I've seen two sparrowhawks in my garden in the last month or two, having never seen one before. Oh, the first sparrowhawks always a good one. Kittens so pretty. Uh, that's tea party for Tony on Twitter. But I saw a few kingfishers this year. First time in 31 years. God, that's good. Wow. Uh, we had Tracy Rich. So her highlight was SI Bird Club and the wonderful youngsters getting fired up about the natural world. 
And Ryan Dalton, that's the host of Into the Wild podcast, said seeing rabbits at early dusk in summer at Hampstead Heath was extremely wholesome. It's always good seeing wildlife in the centre of London, which Hampstead Heath pretty much is. And we had a couple on Instagram as well. We had Scrumpy Taz put walks in nature have kept me going. But if I was to pick one thing, then for me, it was learning how to take better macro photos with forgotten little creatures hmm, who's that then oh thank <laughs> you Victoria, so much yeah he came he came on one of my workshops we did have a fantastic time yeah talking with like-minded nature enthusiasts has spurred me on that's that's good to see and hetty.pelga put discovering hares in a local wood and finding a pond heaving with toads well you we can't argue with that one definitely not we have to do rabbits and hares because we think of them as such familiar animals but when you think about them as an animal they've got massive ears a neck that's S-shaped and huge back legs. and They're just a really weird animal but because we're so familiar with them. We never really think of it, do we? No, but, we don't. Um, yeah. So, on to the wildlife news. Okay, we've got a few stories we're going to kind of run over for this episode. And I'm going to kick off with a bit of a bad news story. So, the Welsh eagle featured in a BBC documentary presented by Yolo Williams, The Last Wilderness of Wales, was unfortunately found dead in August, right before we recorded the episode with Yolo, which believed said it wasn't suspicious, but a post-mortem has found it was actually shot. The Welsh government chose not to share this information, which only came to light under a freedom information. When asked why, they said it was normal not to release this sort of information. And we will put the link to that out there as well. I think we possibly shared it. Yeah, I think we did. But yeah, I remember Yolo saying there was no reason to be suspicious at the time. Yeah, I think I mean, seem to remember at the time there was a few people wondering a little bit. But yeah, so it's bit, basically it probably didn't die from the gunshot, but it had been shot at at least twice, which is just mad, really. There yeah. you go. From illegal hunting to another type of illegal hunting. Good old fox hunting with dogs has been in the news again over Christmas period. Some new footage was released which shows hounds tearing through a farm after a fox and then catching it and killing it. And the landowner of the farm, Alinda Kemp, said, I was heartbroken. I felt violated that they came onto my farm and did this. And I don't know why people have the right to come and rip foxes to pieces on my land. Now, this was the Kimblewick hunt. And they said the fox was killed by accident when the hounds left a previously laid trail. Now, the Kimblewick hunt also claimed that their riders stopped the hounds as soon as they realised they were not following the trail. And they removed the hounds and the carcass as quickly as possible. But I think we might have shared this footage. I'll make sure we have if we haven't. If you watch it yourself, you can actually see, because it's all on CCTV cameras. And there's a huntsman standing there. The fox runs past him. And the hounds run past him and he's just stand oh say standing there, he's sitting on his horse. And he does nothing. Absolutely nothing. Doesn't you don't see him call them or anything. The husband, uh, Roger, said nobody called the hounds off. If anything, it was the opposite. They were egging them on. If you watch the video, you can actually see them pick up the fox and throw it to the hounds after they've killed it. And they just left. They very quickly ran up all the hounds and left and left the farmers to clear up the mess, the remains of the fox on their land. Now, this Kimblewick hunt have got, shall we say, a track record. Two members were given suspended sentences for causing unnecessary suffering to a fox after releasing it into the path of a hunt. So that's Ian Parkinson, who was 65, and Mark Vincent, who was 53. They were convicted after that some covert footage recorded by the hunt sabs showed one man using a drainage rod to remove the animal from the burrow and, pull it, and the other one pulled it out by its tail. And then they released it for the hunts to catch and kill. And of course then the hounds come along moments later and kill it. And their conviction was 120 hours unpaid work and £960 in costs, which I'm sure the hunt struggled to pay. 
Yeah, and there's also footage that's come out of hounds running along a railway line in Worcestershire, which is a very weird place to put a trail. As we've covered, was it last episode, Rick? Or very recent episode, there was some videos released showing hunt organisations how to get round the law, basically, by using the trail hunting law as cover for illegal hunting. And there's also some more, so I don't want to go on too much about this again, but someone's two-year-old cat has been killed by a hunt as well. Came charging into a garden... The owner said before she had a chance to move, one of the hounds jumped up on the wall. The cat ran under a car, but before she could get to the cat, one of the hounds had clamped its jaws around its stomach and shook her to death. And of course, that's not the first time this sort of thing's happened with Hunt. There was that case a few years ago where they got into a cat sentry and quite a few cats went missing. And a report from the League Against Cruel Sports said from August to the end of October, they received 11 reports of pets being chased or injured by hunting hounds and 25 reports of livestock being worried. And the last hunting season, which ended last March, they'd had 80 reports of domestic pets being chased and 65 reports of livestock worrying. And yeah, it just makes you wonder what are they doing to the wildlife while they're running across the countryside as well admittedly it's not in the breeding season but there's a lot of wintering you know animals struggling to survive in winter yeah but there we go yeah not not good at all so on our next news story it's it's a bit of a well actually i don't know i think it might come under a, a more of a good news story and this is that a court hands a firm the largest ever wildlife crime fine after admits demolishing a site in woolwich and this is Bellway house builders were fined £600,000 for destroying a bat roost in South London. Now, bats are fully protected under law in this country. And the company pleaded guilty to damaging or destroying a breeding site or resting place for wild animal of a European protected species between the 17th of March and 17th of August 2018. They also had to pay costs of £30,000 and agreed to make a £20,000 donation to the Bat Conservation Trust. Some reports come out from the Metropolitan Police. So I think we agree it's good to see that these fines and such big fines are being handed out and it's certainly a step in the right direction but you know let's see see what happens. Will it you know deter builders for you yeah. know so often fines are cheaper than carrying out the work to protect the species so we'll I don't know we'll guess we'll just have to see on that one won't we but I think it is it is a step in the right direction it's good to see the firm has actually been fined quite a considerable amount of money so at least it's being recognized with a local paper story <laughs> angry people and local papers story you might in Northampton a family's dog was bitten by a poisonous snake while out for a walk well first of all there's no there's no poisonous snakes in the UK you can't say there's no such thing as a poisonous snake anymore though because they found one that has poisonous flesh and if you're wondering what I'm on about if you bite it and it poisons you it is poisonous if it bites you or stings you it is venomous that's the difference but Away from splitting, well, not splitting hairs, just being accurate. Scientific. (laughs) Yeah, scientific. In the UK, dogs have to be under control when in a public place. But this is a direct quote from the paper, apparently of what the owner said. Jasper had gone off by himself into some bushes and returned around 10 minutes later with a swollen leg. Big face palm. just like yeah that's really supervising your dog isn't it <sighs> well one how do they know it was bitten by an adder because there's quite a few adder bites and you look at the picture and okay i'm not a vet but then a lot of vets probably don't have the experience to recognize adder bites because they're not that common i'm not going to call into a question someone that's better qualified than me but let's just say some of these have been in local papers have been called out but let's let's move past that for a second their dog has been running around in a wood in december where there could be roosting woodcock birds struggling to survive 
and they have no idea where it is. That's before we get on to the whole, you know, could run into a road and hit by a car or this massive spate of dog nappings that apparently is going on at the moment and all this kind of stuff. Their dog could have quite easily done a poo somewhere and they wouldn't have to pick it up, although some people that are cynical might suggest that's part of the reason they let them go out of sight so they've got an excuse. No, I obviously wouldn't do that at all. There could be illegal snares around. You know, it's just plain and simple, irresponsible dog ownership. You should be able to see it at least at all times. And you should be able to call it back if it needs to be called back, which unfortunately lots of dog owners haven't done. But as an aside to that, I mean, let's face it, how often do you... I know it's not unheard of to see adders in December, particularly if it is a warm Mm. December. But generally speaking, it's not Mm. an animal that you would normally see in December. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's possible, but then it makes makes you question whether it was an adder bite. I mean, there was that story, I think we might have covered it on the podcast, fairly recently, where the vet claimed there was no anti-venom in the county. But a few people wondered if that was the vet trying to placate people that were insisting that it was an adder bite. But then, because if you give anti-venom to somebody or an animal that hasn't been bitten, it's actually as harmful as the venom. Shouldn't speculate too much, though, should you really, if I'm honest. It just makes you wonder, is what I'm going to say. It does. Yeah. But you've got a good <laughs> news story. Yes. Yay. We're going to finish with a good news story. And this actually comes from Blakeney Point, where the Little Turns have had their best season in 26 years. So the Little Turn has been in serious decline nationally since the 1980s, with fewer than 2,000 breeding pairs now left in the UK. But Rangers counted 154 pairs of Little Turns nesting over the summer months and 201 chicks, the most since 1994. There were fewer predators affecting the Little Turns this year. And they believe it could be because they nested further along the point and were all together, giving them kind of safety of a larger colony with more eyes and adults to chase away predators. And staff, you know, did a great job, kept an eye on the site and used diversionary feeding by putting out food away from the colony for potential predators and used clay decoys to encourage nesting in best spots on the shoreline. So that is, you know, some really wonderful kind of positive news to end end on, I think. Yeah. I'm going to mention this story i'm not going to go into detail a very facepalm story the rangers at bradgate park which is a famous deer park had to ask people to not feed the reindeer food containing glitter to their deer which just makes <laughs> one of those oh humans stop being so stupid stories but i think it is time to move on to our main topic which is the wonderful winter flowers the winter aconite and the snowdrop which are two of my favorite flowers and I think you're going to kick us off with the winter aconite, aren't and you, Neil? Indeed. The winter aconite, Aranthus hymenalis. They're an interesting flower. I did quite a bit of research with some various conflicting information because obviously gardeners and scientists have different ideas on certain things, which has made it quite interesting. But one thing we can say for sure is they're part of the buttercup family, which includes obviously buttercups and water crowfoot, which you might see growing in a river with the nice white flowers. It's a very small plant. It maxes out about 15 centimetres high. Most of the ones I've seen about 10 centimetres. And it has sort of a yellow cup-shaped flower. And there's a collar or ruff of long oval leaves around the bottom of the flower. Some sources call them bracts, which is not quite technically a leaf, but green leafy things around a nice yellow flower, basically. In the wild, it natively grows in the Southern Alps. That's sort of France, Italy and Slovenia. And it's also present in some of the Balkans, so Serbia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Bosnia, as well as Hungary. But it has been cultivated since the 1570s and it's now widely naturalised in the USA and Western Europe, including the UK. Now, it first came to UK in 1596 
and was first recorded in the wild in 1838. So it's not actually native to the UK, but it does occur fairly widely across the UK. It's quite a lot of them are probably people where people have planted them in the wild and then they've spread rather than just sort of direct escapes. But most of the records seem to be in the south, or certainly south of the Midlands anyway, and towards the east more. But there's records all the way up into Scotland, typically found in deciduous woodland, but also parks, gardens, roadsides and places like that obviously in some of those places they've been planted they don't have a bulb as such but they have sort of a tuberous rhizome root under the ground they shoot in sort of winter early spring up they come and the flower and those leaves come out straight away so it's not like leaves and then they come out the flower comes out straight away and then the leaves stay up for after it's flowered for quite a while the genus name Eranthus comes from the Greek for spring flower and the species name roughly translates to winter flowering so that's a little bit confusing. So that means spring flower, winter flowering. <laughs> but there we go. There's been a few studies done. Uh, in Poland, they were started flowering in February and tended to last till the end of March. Now, when the aconites actually flowered, it was affected by temperature. So when it was warm, the flowering intensified. But when we got snowfalls, it would slow down the process. So they'd flower a bit later. Now, during the day, the flowers tended to open between 8am and 3pm, which is basically when the sun's out at that time of year. And it's a very important source of early nectar, especially for honeybees. Now, the rhizome and roots contain a protein called lectin, and this has antimicrobial properties to it. So it's been very interesting to scientists looking into biotech and agriculture for sort of like pesticides and sterilising stuff. But the plant is known to be toxic, and that's the whole plant. But um, all members of this uh, buttercup family have the same toxic tissues so technically buttercups are toxic to some degree but of course between the species it varies so the chemicals tend to be cardiac glycosides specifically for the chemists among you it's aranfin a and b and the side effects of consuming winter aconite include nausea vomiting diarrhea colic bradycardia disturbed vision diacinopenia and cardiac arrest so i wouldn't recommend eating them <laughs> No, no, please don't go and start snacking on them. My favourite one, Zipton, I found on another website, was uh, after cardiac arrest, they put, inverted commas, sudden death, (laughs) which I hear isn't good. (laughs) That's not a good good side effect at all. No. No, no. No, I wouldn't recommend trying that in a salad, to be honest. Once all the flowering's finished, the leaves remain for two or three months. So that obviously stores them up some energy while the leaves are still starting to come up on the trees. And then they die back, conserve energy, because obviously if they're grown in deciduous woodland, they're not going to get much light or rain through the summer. So to conserve energy, they basically shut down and wait for the next winter. Now, when the plant goes dormant, the leaves start to go black, but the seed pods obviously remain above and then they just start to drop off. But they can take up to three years to reach flowering stage. So they do recommend if you want to plant some in your garden, you obviously get the rhizomes or roots. And it's or even better, take an actual plant. You tend to find that the seeds aren't the main source of them growing. They tend to grow, basically the roots spread, which effectively turn into rhizomes and you get new plants coming out along the roots, which is why when you do find them, you tend to find a clump of them spread around. Well, that's the winter aconite, a summary there. I'm going to go and kind of chat about snowdrops. And they do have quite a few things in common with the winter aconites and actually also with some of our other woodland flowers. Again, they tend to be found in deciduous woodland and also hedgerows as well as our gardens. Now, snowdrops, along with winter aconites, are one of the first flowers we see in the year. They can start to appear from January onwards with flowering peaking around about kind of late February to early March. But this does depend on whether they're cultivated or wild and also the weather. Now, I will say at this point, because 
uh, snowdrops are uh, a, a really popular flower to have in our garden. I mean, they're, they're stunning. They're one of my favourite flowers. You know, I, I often you know, get people telling me, oh, you know, my snowdrops are in flower. I've, I've seen snowdrops in flower in a garden already this year, and I've seen reports of them. These are cultivated snowdrops. And if we have warm winters, they will flower earlier. But we do also see them growing in the wild. And certainly the ones that I, I have here that I've been photographing and like keeping an eye on for I know, about four or five years now, that even with changes in weather pattern, they still flower around about the same time every year. But it's the cultivated ones we have in our garden that will change more readily in relation to the weather. So the plant that we see growing wild in the woodlands in Britain is actually the common snowdrop. This is Galanthus nivalis. It was actually once thought to be a native species to the British Isles, but it is an introduced species that's become naturalised over the years. And in some areas, it does create beautiful white carpets in damper woodlands. So again, very much like the winter aconite, it's not technically a native species, but it is naturalised and they do grow wild as it were here now. So it's believed that the bulbs were first brought over in the 15th century by Italian monks and then planted in monastery gardens. This was the first known cultivation of snowdrops and they were then first recorded growing wild nearly 200 years later in 1778. They're now widely naturalised in our woodlands and hedgerows and there are quite a few places. I mean, there's a place in Devon called Snowdrop Valley. You know, I know there's snowdrops that grow here. There's quite a few places now that you, you can see them growing wild. The scientific name for snowdrop, Galanthus nivalis, comes from both Greek and Latin. So Galanthus is derived from two Greek words, gala meaning milk and anthus meaning flower, which refers to the white petals, and nivalis is derived from the Latin for snow. So together they form milk flower of the snow, which I think is a really wonderful description of this, this plant. And it's interesting that it's actually a mix of, of Greek and Latin there in the scientific name, as same with the winter aconite as well, actually, that Neil just mentioned. But these are really fascinating little plants. So we start to see their leaves, you know, late on in the year, um, around December time, and almost a little bit like bluebells, really, the leaves will come up first and they'll be up for a while before we start to see any flowers actually pushing through. Flowers can start to push through as early as January for the cultivated ones, late January, early February for the wild ones. And you'll actually see them starting to come up, but they don't come up and flower straight away. So they'll come up and kind of hang there for a little bit before they, they properly flower and open up. So as a plant that begins flowering in winter, they can obviously experience huge variations in weather conditions from snow and ice and sub-zero temperatures to flooding, sunshine and high single figures, low double figures, you know, in some years. Now, the ones that I have here local to me. Unfortunately, the valley behind the house, the wooded valley, was flooded quite badly before Christmas. I actually saw the photos of it. We have two rivers that meet. It's not the first time they've been flooded out. A couple of years ago, they got flooded. They got covered in snow two years ago. So they, they really do get absolutely hammered, these poor little plants. And then you might remember back in, I think it was 2019, we actually had temperatures of like 14, 15, 16 degrees in February. So they, they do have to endure a lot but they do have a secret weapon to help them get through the cold snaps. And that is they actually contain antifreeze proteins. And these proteins inhibit the growth of ice crystals and it actually then prevents them from freezing during those really cold spells. So if you've been lucky to experience snowdrops in the snow, you'll notice that they kind of get completely swamped. They, they kind of shrivel and look worse for wear and you think, oh, that's probably had it. It's not gonna come back from that. But you see it a few days later once the snow's thawed and it's like nothing happened. They're back to, you know, vibrant 
beautiful little white flower. And that's basically how they survive uh, wintertime. Now at the other end of the temperature scale, once the air of temperature reaches around about 10 degrees Celsius, the petals will actually open revealing pollen nectar. And these are actually vital and sometimes the only food source for some of our early emerging bumblebees. So not native, but a naturalized flower, but they also are providing you know, vital food sources for those bumblebees that start to come out, uh, very much like the winter aconites as well. And one last interesting fact about snowdrops is that the bulbs are poisonous to humans, causing nausea, vomiting and diarrhea if ingested. So please don't go and start munching on snowdrop bulbs or winter aconites. Bluebells are actually the same. Quite a lot of our woodland flowers are quite poisonous. So yeah, uh, <laughs> but certainly in this country, we, we do have, I'm going to put like a little bit of history in here for you, in that we have a bit of an obsession for snowdrops. So much so, there's actually a word for it. Do you know what it is, Neil? Um, it's galanthophile. It is. Uh, so snowdrop kind of people that are passionate collectors and cultivators of snowdrops are called galanthophiles. So in the late 19th century, breeding snowdrops and cultivating new varieties became incredibly fashionable. And still to this day, there is a fascination and almost a, an obsession with these plants. They're a favourite amongst gardeners and horticulturists alike. And as we said, there is actually a term for these people. And there are actually hundreds of different varieties you can now buy to plant in your garden. Um, thought to be around about 500 varieties of snowdrop. And there was one man that was responsible for at least 100 of those. And his name was James Allen, known as the Snowdrop King. And one of the reasons I'm actually mentioning this is because he actually... He was one believed to be one of the first people to cultivate snowdrops from wild plants. Not only that, he actually, a lot of his work was done at his home in Shepton Mallet, which is where I grew up. So there is that connection there. So maybe that's why I have such an affinity for snowdrops. Now, we're talking about, this isn't the wild ones, obviously, we're talking about cultivars here. But as a, a bit of an aside, do you know what the record for a single snowdrop bulb is? This is in 2012. I think this has been broken, actually. Do you have a guess? Is this in terms of being... Yeah, sold. Sold. It, it's it's a huge amount of money. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's a huge amount of money. Well, one in 2012 sold for £725. But there's one in 2015 sold for £1,390. <laughs> Um, I've I've got a feeling that record's been broken as well because I'm sure there was one a bit more recently unless time's flown as usual and I've I've lost track of time but yeah that's just insane over a grand for one bowl <laughs> it is really interesting and actually the there's two varieties uh, Magnet and Merlin uh, they're called uh, the snowdrop varieties that are actually still planted around Shepton Mallet today they, we have a basically Shepton Mallet celebrates James Allen and like the connection with snowdrops and the town and there's a big snowdrop festival every year sadly that festival had to be cancelled this year due to the pandemic but it's it's a real celebration of that history there and there's hundreds if not thousands of snowdrops are planted around the town yeah there's poetry competitions photography competitions events a lantern parade yeah there's actually a snow snowdrop sale so you can go and buy loads of different varieties of snowdrop as well i hear with the photography competition someone kept winning it so much they made a yeah i've heard that too (laughs) (laughs) yes i I won twice and then was asked if i would judge it which is obviously a real honor for me because also it is my is my hometown it's where i grew up yeah and i didn't win when she judged it (laughs) but anyway moving swiftly on 
you know, as Niels mentioned about the the double flowered snowdrops, these do they can actually now naturally occur in the wild as well. I've actually I do know of a couple of places that they have started naturally occurring, and they're absolutely stunning when you see them. It's it's basically a double petaled flower, and it's just amazing. I have a couple of photos, so we'll, you know, make sure we share those uh, on. Yeah, because of course, even the cultivated ones have got to come from mutation somewhere. So they probably were, you know, someone found a wild form one that had a double and bred from it. That's yeah. probably how they've done it, isn't it? So, right. Well, I think that's pretty much it on snowdrops and winter aconites. One thing I will add to both of them is having worked somewhere with lots of muntjac deer going around hoovering up and destroying all the bluebells and stuff like that, eating all the vegetation. They don't touch snowdrops at all. Although, as I found out today, badgers will dig them up to get yes. to food next to them. <laughs> so we had to replant a few today. Brilliant things to plant if you've got lots of deer in the area. But, uh, I actually saw that on, on two articles when I was researching come up as deer-proof plants. But the, the interesting so. is, um, like snowdrops, actually the same with, with bluebells. Well, once they finish flowering, the leaves will still remain for a couple of months. And it's really important that those leaves are left like untouched and un- undisturbed. Because what happens is that then allows all the nutrients to be taken back into the bulbs, ready for the following year. Yeah, because they'll, they'll photosynthesize for a few weeks to yep. build up the sugars and yep. stuff ready for next year, won't they, to flower with. That's why they go instantly into flowers and so lovely. Just a uh, thank you to everybody. We're up to, well, we're up to 40,000 downloads now. So thanks for that, guys. Big thank you to everyone that's um, that's interacted with us as well. You know, keep sending in your questions. And I think just before we go, we've got... A l- some news to share with you about some stuff that we've got coming up some of you've probably seen on social media we've got some live shows coming up we're gonna especially the lockdown on we thought we'd uh, make a bit of an effort to do some more live stuff and we're currently looking at we'll give you the exact details and times but saturday during the day and perhaps a thursday evening as well each week just to give you a little bit more content um i've got my microscope geared up i've got some little creatures to look at as well and uh, we hopefully might even get some guests to talk a bit of photography as well keep an eye on the social media we'll we'll certainly make a big song and dance about it and a massive thank you to everyone that's been sharing it i put a post up yesterday to ask people to share about the podcast for people to listen to in the lockdown and a lot of you did share it so thanks for that but yeah i, I think, think that is for, for now yeah we've got two more episodes coming this month all being well on top of the lives so yeah we'll see and you hopefully then. you know we'll be we'll be interacting and sharing you know, lots of pictures and stuff as well. Do, yeah, do send us your wildlife highlights. We're going to try and get some more, you know, mentions of people listening and what you've been seeing as well. We're trying we're try to make a little regular feature of that as well, I think. And of course, if you've got any pictures you want us to share on the live shows, send them to us as well. Tag UK Wildlife Podcast, all one word, on Twitter, and then we can find it a lot easier. Yeah. We'll see you yeah, on next Take time. care, everyone. Bye. Bye.